Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Thanks to all of you that have been in touch recently in one way or another after my recent absence from the podcast. I've, I've really felt your warmth, that's for sure. So it's really appreciated. Thank you. But also a big thank you to all of you that took up the birthday special offer from last week and grabbed yourself a copy of my book, Property Investor Toolkit, and in the process sent it back towards the top of the charts once again. Much appreciated. Now this week, a former business colleague got in touch through LinkedIn, and so we had a bit of a catch-up chat. He asked me, literally, (laughs) so what do you think about all this landlord bashing And what are your thoughts about property investing going forward? Big questions then. So today's uh, show is uh, an elaboration of my response, if you like, Um, equally prompted by a recent news headline, which goes along the lines of uh, 50% of landlords could quit the sector due to tax changes. Now, as as ever, headlines don't always tell the whole story, but they do sometimes give a bit of an indication of a direction. So what are the main incentives and indeed disincentives that are driving these sentiments among my former business colleague and indeed among perhaps 50% of landlords? Of course, along with some of my own personal investing behavior as well. Well, let's find out, shall we? (laughs) Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. As I mentioned, a former colleague contacted me and, uh, and asked for a call. It's always good to catch up with former colleagues and, and business contacts, especially when you have, uh, have not spoken a while, uh, sorry, for a while, but uh, we did have a good working relationship. And a bit of a cue there, um, he, when he called me, he said he's, he's been watching me for a while, but uh, thought he'd make contact. So if, if you've been watching me for a while and you're a former uh, business colleague or, or, or work colleague, then uh, feel free to get in touch. But you never know what's on people's mind in advance. And in my uh, in my former colleague's case, he made his sentiments quite clear after an initial exchange of pleasantries. He asked me, so what do you think about all this landlord bashing? And what are your thoughts about property investing going forward? He then went on to share with me some of his own sentiments and, and how um, that is happening and what it's and how it's affecting his property investment plans, which are which have mainly been buy to let, but on a fairly small scale so far. I also shared some of my current property activities and to some extent how these have been driven by recent changes in the tax and regulatory landscape. The main things that I'm involved with in property right now personally are these. More emphasis on development, more emphasis on uh, overseas market for investment and trading, less emphasis on new UK single property standard buy-to-lets, and more emphasis on alternative commercial structures and property strategies that negate some of the recent tax changes. But why is this and how is government policy directing my personal property plans? 
There's a phrase used in economics that incentives work. Economic incentives are offered to encourage people to make certain choices or behave in a certain way. And they usually involve money, but they can also be non-financial. I guess by definition that a disincentive is, of course, the opposite of this, but more like a penalty, if you prefer. In terms of general government policy, um, here are some of the big incentives or disincentives or penalties that have been introduced of late. First of all, we've got the 3% stamp duty premium for second or investment property ownership. That makes buying new investment properties more expensive when compared to previous purchases that we might have made or when compared to current non-investment buyers or homeowners. Two, the caps and reclassification of mortgage interest tax deduction or tax relief for individual buy-to-let investors, which makes buy-to-let less profitable for higher-rate taxpayers and can also push some basic rate taxpayers into a higher tax bracket or indeed high high tax uh, rate payers into a highest tax rate bracket but uh, I guess that'll be a smaller number. And three, a hodgepodge of statements, policies and incentives aimed at encouraging new house building. These three changes and there are others but they're the main ones I want to talk about but these three changes alone highlight the general behavior that the government seeks to encourage and that's less rental investment properties held by individuals and more corporate and institutional investment into rental property and especially new homes provision. The incentives and disincentives take the shape of policy statements, changes to planning guidelines, access to funding and grants and tax treatment, of course, in the most part. They're deliberately designed to shape our actions and behavior, and in a lot of cases, it's working. Many existing landlords who own buy-to-let property are considering selling some or indeed all of their portfolio, or perhaps switching into alternative types of investment, be that within property or elsewhere. Or they're looking for alternative structures and even loopholes to try and avoid the pain instead. Some potential new landlord investors are having a bit of a rethink about buy-to-let altogether, or they're simply sitting on the fence right now. They might also be looking at alternatives as well. Well, if you're an existing landlord investor in buy-to-let, and in particular use mortgages, and are or would be a high or highest rate taxpayer due to the changes, then no doubt you'll be fairly well tuned into all this. You may be put off by the additional stamp duty premium and possibly coughing over your cornflakes when you fully understand how much buy-to-let profit could be eroded um, if you are an individual investor in buy-to-let and, as I mentioned, use mortgages and uh, a higher rate taxpayer. Personally, I'm potentially impacted by some of these uh, these two tax changes as well, stamp duty and mortgage interest relief. And I've seen new single unit properties, be they for trading profit purposes or long-term buy-to-let rental income, take a bit of a dent in terms of their profitability. I am to some extent though, personally speaking this is, protected from some of these tax changes um, or some of these changes to my existing portfolio and trading options as a result of some tax insulation that I've built over time. 
So I'm not in any hurry to rush into incorporation or to enter into a range of complex trust arrangements. Not just yet, at least. But that may change down the line, that's for sure. However, I'm not that keen on exacerbating the problem in the short term. So I am, to some extent, sitting it out. And as far as new single-let, buy-to-let rental properties are concerned, if that's not too many variations on a theme in one sentence, uh, do, do intend, to, uh, do intend to, to sit it out, as I mentioned. However, some parallels between what is happening in the UK right now and what is happening in Ireland over the past few years or so are relevant. Rather like the UK, Ireland introduced a range of policies and indeed penalties aimed at deterring rental investment among private landlords and instead favouring home ownership. Without going into all of the detail, it failed miserably. And the reason why it failed was that there was a rather large and false assumption that the government in Ireland made that drove their policy. The assumption was that everyone both wants to and indeed can own their own home. It's simply not true. 100% home ownership is just not possible. <laughs> Firstly, many people prefer the characteristics and flexibility of renting over the high bar and responsibility of home ownership. It's a choice, in other words. Secondly, some just don't have the choice, to be perfectly frank. Lower entry costs, mobility, no ongoing repair and maintenance issues on the one hand, along with a lack of ability to prove mortgage payment affordability or lending viability, poor credit and low ability to save, creating a gap in terms of financeable mortgagees on the other. Help, this, helps, uh, this balance rather helps to disprove that false assumption, uh, i.e. that everybody can and should own a home. Certainly above a certain level of home ownership anyway. Home ownership peaked at around 72% in the UK. And if you look at Europe, that's kind of round about the peak as well. There's a couple of small exceptions. Uh, but essentially, round about the early 70s seems to be a natural limit. In the UK, it, uh, home ownership currently stands around 64%. And of course, many commentators are up in arms about this decline in home ownership rates as a result. However, it's safe to say that even at 72% home ownership, which seems like it might be a natural limit, implies that other forms of home occupation are absolutely required. These forms of home ownership are primarily social housing and the private rental sector which are roughly equal in size. Of course, you can have private rental sector offering some form of quasi-social housing as well, but let's not overcomplicate that. But to illustrate that point to some extent, the rate of social housing provision has been in steady decline for a couple of decades now due to lack of council housing funding, uh, sorry, council housing and funding for housing associations. So the slack has been taken up by the private rented sector both for those that can't or don't want to buy, generally speaking, but also to plug the gap left as a result of the social housing declines as well. Many of these housing providers were, of course, individual landlords. The vast majority, though, of private landlords own just one to three rental properties, 
So they're not exactly property moguls. Round about 75% of landlords fall into this category. So it's not such a good idea to punish the private landlord when they are in fact providing a necessary service that forms an important part of the housing market as a whole. Now is it? If you don't believe me, then just take a look at what, what Ireland is now having to do. It's having to reverse its uh, previous decisions and policy aimed at reducing the attractiveness of private investment into housing uh, that followed a similar track to that of the UK now, and is in fact now actively incentivizing uh, housing, uh, investment housing for private landlords instead. <laughs> it's gone full circle. The reason is quite simple. It takes huge sums of money to build and provide homes for people, and neither the government, the social housing sector, or indeed some of the larger financial institutions getting into the private rental sector have pockets deep enough and a capacity wide enough to meet the demand we have for new homes in the UK. And uh, it's all, it, and it's all, oh, excuse me, <laughs> I'm not going to edit it out. You just have to live with it. And of course, all of it's required 10 years, such as ownership, social and private rental. These homes will need to be available to buy and also to rent, as I've explained already. All three housing tenures will still be required, not just ownership. I mean, think about it. How does the benefits claimant buy a house? when they won't qualify for a mortgage. What about students? They will move on after a couple of years, so they want flexibility. What about younger people? They're chasing their careers or a partner, and so need, the, uh, need to be mobile and flexible too. These are just some of the realities that mean we absolutely need rental properties in the order of 30% or so, it seems, of the housing sector to provide for these types of household. I do agree, though, that a level of home ownership is desirable for society in general. It does provide a natural place to hold money, or to save in other words, which can be used as a pension, healthcare provision, or a leg up to the next generation as well. It can, over the long term, help to reduce housing costs to people, provided they stop climbing the ladder, settle down into a house, and start to pay off the mortgage. In other words, I think the policies will go full circle. Of course, we won't have either extreme, with extremely high levels of home ownership or extremely low levels of home ownership. Neither of those are desirable. So there's some natural equilibrium. But, you know, it seems to be, you know, swinging the pendulum from one end to the other. But it will go full circle is my personal point of view. But from a personal point of view, from an investment uh, investment perspective, I'm now faced with a couple of options right now. These are as follows. First of all, defend my current portfolio position, which I'm doing through a regular portfolio review, targeting properties that can sustain a gradual and modest rental increase and strategic sales and refinancing so that debt levels are manageable. However, I'm not actively growing my standard single let UK buy to let portfolio right now. It's quite a lot of qualification there, you might note. Second of all, I'm looking for richer pickings. The fundamentals of the UK property market remain strong. Low supply and high demand is not going away anytime soon, even with Brexit. 
However, there is a greater short-term emphasis on housing supply these days, and that means property development and or conversion from other uses into residential use being desirable. Schemes such as build to rent, loosening of planning restrictions such as permitted development rights, and more funding and less regulation for house builders are all examples of incentives specifically designed to support this. That makes development and conversion potentially more appealing, or at least a little easier than it was in recent times. So I'm doing a little bit more in this category as well. Next, diversify into more investor-friendly markets. Now, there are some examples of uh, more favourable property segments from an incentive point of view in the UK, such as a commercial property or more likely for existing buy-to-let investors, mixed-use property, which straddles the two, uh, residential and commercial. However, right now, and for me at least, it's easier to look at alternative uh, international residential markets where the landscape is more receptive. An example is the USA, which offers higher yields for single-family homes and more favourable tax treatment, especially in terms of financing. Of course, it's a mature market and it's got a strong legal system as well, which all counts. Um, Not to mention common language, although there's currency issues and that kind of thing. So there are some differences. But yep, as mentioned last week, I have some properties in the US right now and I'm actively looking to take on more. Finally, mixing the commercial model up a little bit to improve the net returns. So here this is looking at higher yielding property strategies such as HMOs and short-term letting, which offer potential for higher income to offset the higher after-tax costs. Similarly, alternative structures and commercial models such as limited company ownership or lease, rental and owner finance property which allow immediate control of a property but with deferred ownership models, but allow a more favourable after-tax profit position to be adopted. So I'm actively investigating and indeed implementing some of these structures as well, therefore. The net result of all this, for me at least, is a watchful eye on what will happen with government policy and regulation over the coming five years or so. I do think it will take some time for the oil tanker of government to see the iceberg and change course before hitting it though, just as was the case with Ireland. So from my personal point of view, I'm not going to hang around and wait for that ship to come back into port anytime soon. Instead, development, conversion, overseas markets and alternative ownership and rental investment models are attracting my attention and also keeping me very busy right now. Standard single property buy-to-let in the UK will probably come back on the radar one day. But don't worry, I'll keep you posted as this all unfolds. But here's my conclusion. It'll, it'll be okay in the end. If you, have a, if you have modest property ambitions, then perhaps stick with buy-to-let, but perhaps take a close look at alternative ownership models going forward. I mean, legal ownership models and that kind of thing. It doesn't need to be overly overly complex to offset some of the changes if you have, say, one to three rental properties. However, if you intend to derive a a reasonable retained income or asset base from your property activities, then think more like a professional investor and adopt a flexible approach to your investment, uh, investment strategies. Water the plants for growth by growing rental income 
and remove the leakage of costs and taxation to keep the ground fertile and so retaining higher net profits as you do. Don't forget that you can always store your cash in property later on once you've grown the snowball large enough. There's no escaping the idea, in my mind at least, that property will remain a very attractive asset class to store wealth over the long term, even if net property incomes get squeezed along the way. So I fully intend to retain most of my existing properties, acquire new higher income ones in due course, and use other property as a means in one way or another to grow the snowball along the way. I might just take a meandering path through different property strategies in getting there, that's all. Now, I'm a more experienced uh, investor and in and a different position to many. So whilst I have multiple interests and strategies that I'm actively working on, I appreciate this is not always possible for new and early stage investors. However, some strategies are more favorable than others. So after a couple of standard buy-to-lets, you too might be thinking, what now? just as I have. Then you'll start to look at market trends and strategies, but also at the incentives that are out there for us to take up or indeed avoid as appropriate. Let me know if you need any help in figuring all of this out just by emailing e- emailing in rather, and we can have a chat. Finally, and as a parting thought, passing thought, parting thought, yes, parting thought, Whilst I have some kind of, uh, well, whilst I've I've suggested that incentives work and to some extent illustrated the point here with my own personal actions and behavior, don't let the tax tail wag the investment dog is something I always like to say. It's a consideration, that's for sure, but one among many, uh, many others I hinted at just now. Buy-to-let might be wounded, but property investment and other property income generating asset accumulation opportunities, blimey, that was a difficult sentence, still exist for the smart investor. Remember that you can always email me, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net, if you want to talk about anything from today's show or more generally in property investing. The show notes will also be over at the website, thepropertyvoice.net. But for now, all I want to say is thank you very much for listening once again this week. And until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.